Hello and welcome to episode 400 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Beth Ben Olson. With me is Nathan Fox. We're the co-founders of LSATdemon.com and the LSAT Demon Daily podcast. If you have news or want to ask questions, you can do so on our website. That's thinkinglsat.com. This is episode 400, Nathan. How does that make you feel? <laughs> you know, I felt something on like 100. Yep. And I felt something on 365 because I realized that we had one episode for every day of the year. <clears throat> 400, not feeling that much. Although the team now is making me kind of feel something because Eric, uh, well, I guess Ashley uh, asked the team for some of their favorite episodes uh, from the show's history. And so Eric put that on our agenda today. So I that makes me feel something that, you know, it means something to our community that we've created in Elsa yeah. Demon Land. Yeah, this first one is from uh, Delia, right? She says she liked episode 322, El LSAT Elevator Pitches. She called it the Holy Grail. <laughs> yeah, let's listen to a little clip. All right, flaw questions. Flaw questions um, are a passage-driven question type. They are like a must-be-true. An example question is, which one of the following most accurately describes a flaw in the argument as opposed to weaken, right? Weaken is which one, if true, will change the argument for the worse. Flaw mm -hmm. questions are which one is a flaw inherent in the argument. So the strategy here, I like to think about these in two steps. The correct answer will describe exactly what the argument is doing wrong. Do it in two steps. If you can answer, if you can't answer yes to both of these questions, the answer is wrong. One, does the answer describe exactly what's happening in the argument? If you can't prove they did it, there's no need to go to step two. This is key because frequently students will try to do both steps at once. Oh, but yeah. The second step is, is the flaw a problem for the particular argument? So does pointing this out put the argument in a bad spot? I, I would encourage you to do it one step at a time because yep. most answers are going to fail on step one. Yeah, and it's much easier of a test, right? You're just like, right. am I, do I see the components of this answer choice in the actual argument and are they happening as described? No. I mean, that was kind of wordy, but the point yeah. is, is as I'm reading the answer choice, I can just try to pin each word back to the argument. And as soon as I can't, I'm done reading too. You don't even have to read the whole answer choice. Yeah. That was the episode where we went through all of the, however many, what is it? 10 or 11 types of LSAT of logical reasoning questions. Mm -hmm. And we gave an elevator pitch for what you're thinking on uh, each type of LR question. Now, of course, we always just attack the argument first because we don't read the question first here. We read the argument first, attack the argument. But then once we turn to the question, yeah, they're asking you to do different things. So what do you do on a strengthened question versus what do you do on a must be true question? And it's very different things. So that'll, if you want to listen to that segment, it'll give you uh, short elevator pitches for every type of LR question. Yeah. What's this next one? So Stuart said episode 299, slow down to speed up, has a special place in my heart. I listened to the segment on speed a couple of times while studying to keep myself in check and to keep myself from freaking out about not finishing. It's kind of ironic that Stuart was listening to our segment about how you need to slow down um, 
on speed, <laughs> one and a half or double speed, I guess. But yeah, I didn't you know. know how to interpret that. I also thought maybe he just meant the segment about speed. Like, I, oh, oh, that's probably what he meant. <laughs> Sorry. Or I there could be on speed, which would be a very interesting <laughs> experience. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I, I've obviously read that wrong. Yeah. He's, he said he just listened. We were talking about speed. And yes. So, yes. anyway, here's a clip. Uh, we'll play this clip for you a clip about this is a really important bit of LSAT instruction, I think. Wouldn't you say, mm -hmm. Ben? Like mm -hmm. maybe mm -hmm. the most important lesson you can learn about the LSAT? Yeah is that you don't have to finish. I mean, this is Stuart who ended up scoring 170 whatever and teaching for us. Yeah. And he he had to regularly remind himself while he was practicing that he did not need to finish. He just needed to get them right. And slowing down is the best way to getting faster. So if you just can't accept <laughs> this idea that you can go slower, well... Think of it as a means to that end. I see it all the time. I mean, I was with a tutoring student the other day who I was in the previous session. I was repeatedly, you know, reminding her that she needs to slow way down. She's attempting way too many questions and not getting nearly enough of them right. Mm -hmm. And she did slow way down at the beginning of the section. And so I could look at her. I could look at her section and it was just, OK, well, I can see where you started to worry about the time. Because you got the first 12 in a row right, which is excellent. And then, you know, you got like one out of three <laughs> of the remaining, just the remainder of the section. You know, you did you did another 12 questions and you you only got three of them right or four of them right. And uh, so that's yeah, it's just you. we all need to be reminded all the time that we can just slow down a little bit and make it easier on ourselves. Let's listen to the clip. I've called this before the fundamental paradox of the LSAT, that you have to slow down to speed up. You slow down, the test gets easier, then you don't have a problem with speed anymore. Flip of that. Mm -hmm. Like if you wanted to fuck somebody up, like let's say somebody was scoring 155 and you wanted to ruin their game entirely. Yeah, tell them to go faster. Tell them to finish every section. Yeah, why aren't you finishing? Hurry up. <laughs> yeah, what's wrong with you? You're leaving points on there. What? There's questions that you're not even answering. It's got to be better you know, to at least try them. <laughs> you're not even going to try. That's a fail. Right. And so then now that same student who was able to like, you know, sort them out a lot of them, but then run out of time and get a 155. That's actually a really pretty strong performance. And now instead they skim through, they rush through. And when that happens, the questions get way, way harder because you just you're not seeing the shortcuts and the wrong answers start to look attractive because you don't really know what they mean. You don't really know what you're looking for. And then the paradox kicks in, which is it actually makes you slower. Yeah. You know, I mean, either you skim the surface and just miss them all. Yep. Or if you try that, well, I'm going to get it right, but I'm going to get it right really fast. Yeah. Like that dumb tip of do 10, the first 10 in 10 minutes. Yeah. You know how people try to do that sometimes? That's a yeah. turd. Yeah. People who try to do that, they then, it's like all of a sudden those first 10, which used to be easy for you. Well, now they're hard. Now they're hard. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. You call it a paradox. You said it's the fundamental paradox of the LSAT. It's maybe a little grandiose, but. Sure. No, I mean, it's a core issue, right? And yeah. the thing is, is it's true in other domains. 
So, <laughs> you know, if anyone's like, eh, it's like, think about this for a second. The, those military folks, right, who kick ass in situations I would utterly fail in, um, go by the mantra, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Yep. You don't want to be like fumbling around with your gun. You want to aim and shoot and hit the first time. Yep. The next one was from Matt Dumont. Uh, Matt Dumont has been around here for a long time, right? He was originally a student of your in-person class. Is that right? He was, yeah. He was a, a student with me in LA and then he was a, a teaching assistant with me in LA mm -hmm. and then he he became a bigger and bigger part of Fox LSAT. And then when we joined forces finally on LSAT Demon uh, in the pandemic, Matt has been huge from the very beginning, teaching classes for us and doing lots of stuff. So a whole yeah, a whole range of things. And his his all time favorite was the man with kind eyes. That's episode 156. That that certainly is a <laughs> That is a funny episode, if nothing else. He says it taught him all the things not to do on his personal statement. He got something out of it for his personal statement. It, it, for me, it was more just entertainment, <laughs> just pure entertainment. It is kind of a kind of a good one. Let's listen to uh, a little a little bit of that. Yeah. Upon entering the building, I found a round, little gray-haired man with a friendly smile and kind eyes standing behind the security desk. This I wave. Is, mm, what? Sorry. I was going to say, this is trying to be, trying to create a narrative. Yeah, it's you. this like cinematic bullshit. <laughs> that I, it's, kind eyes. You should, yeah, I know. Kind eyes is like, are you trying to, it, are you writing this dude's Tinder profile or what? <laughs> I don't, are you setting someone up on a double date? Why, why does that, why is, why, is this man's eyes, why are this man's <laughs> eyes in your personal statement? <laughs> Sorry, it's funny. Okay. I waved, said hello, and asked in English, where is 434 Lanche Road? He smiled even broader and vigorously nodded his head. Oh, Ezra. <laughs> you asked him where it is, and he nodded. Vigorously. I, I mean, okay, trying to get across that you're at your right place. So here's what happened in your first paragraph. You found your apartment that you're supposed to be going to, and there was a beautiful man there. <laughs> this is your personal statement for law school. Episode 190 was uh, Francesca's favorite episode. Episode 190, now that we've let you listen to us roasting <laughs> roasting the man with the kind eyes personal statement, uh, that was Ezra's personal statement. Now that you've heard us do that, you could take a little listen maybe to us uh, roasting our own personal statements, which they are just absolutely garbage. Maybe let's uh, let's do let's actually listen to a little bit of these, Ben, and then talk about them just a tiny bit. OK, I'm going to click the link on yours and listen to the first like just two sentences. OK, here we are. 
<laughs> and I have a title. The title says, oh, geez, I can't read the title. Leadership. I like how it's in all caps, leadership, <laughs> just by itself, leadership. And then we have a paragraph. That's awesome. Fuck? Why did I do this? Okay. This is thinking back. I find that my most challenging and growing experiences have been my opportunities to lead. I don't even want to listen to it now. <laughs> um, awesome. Excellent. Okay. Your personal statement is uh, making you personally cringe. Anything you want to say about it? No. <laughs> Have fun. Enjoy listening to that garbage. Yeah, that was that. It's cringy and fun. So. Uh, again, this is episode 190. Let me take a little quick listen to uh, my own personal statement. Okay, here we go. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. Sorry, I'm already it's so bad. Enjoying this, so, first this is so bad. Okay. Babson's MBA gave me a large box of tools for conceiving, developing, and operating businesses. <laughs> the MBA is the subject of this sentence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the MBA gave me a toolbox. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, check out that episode if you want to hear us uh, have some fun at our own expense. We we have fun with everybody else who emails the show, and we, we really do appreciate you guys. But um, we're really just trying to get better. And um, maybe listen to that <laughs> episode, and you'll hear us criticizing ourselves. It's really bad. Okay. Um, and I don't think we need to probably listen to, well, Eric might play this last clip, I guess for the, yeah, this last episode just is 54. It's when my youngest son interrupted us to see if I could let him or join him in watching Octonauts, which is a cartoon show. Episode 54. That was quite some time ago. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that was like at least 250 weeks ago. So that would have been yeah <laughs> five years ago. Yeah. Cool. Well, I guess should we go? Seth, Seth, my youngest just came in. Um, we're doing a podcast, so we're recording some stuff. Do you have any questions? Yes. What? Uh, think. Uh, I want I cannot. Then this is You want to go watch Octonauts? Okay. Uh, hold on, Nathan. Let me <laughs> let me take this guy back. Excellent. All right. Hope you guys had fun with those clips. Uh, we got some news here. This is minor news, really. Not a lot mm. of there. There. Yeah. Uh, just LSAC raising its prices. You want to hit the highlight? Sure. So the test fee for the 2023-2024 will increase 3%. I'm not sure where they got that number, but it's going to go from $215 for an LSAT to now $222. And the CAS subscription fee, which you need in addition to taking the LSAT, and this is just to manage your applications, is going to go from $195 to $200. I want to I want to point out I I'm pretty sure I speculated when they announced that they were going to give you the option to take it in person again. Mm -hmm. Remember that mm -hmm. a couple of weeks mm -hmm. ago, right? Mm -hmm. They announced that they were going to give the option to take it in person. 
And I believe at the time I speculated that they were probably going to raise prices. And (laughs) sure enough, that is their second paragraph. As we announced earlier this month, starting with the August 2023 administration, most test takers will have the option to take the LSAT in an online remotely proctored format or in person at a test center. Offering both formats responds to the expressed desires of test takers, but it will result in substantially higher costs to LSAC. To help offset some of the increased costs, the fee will increase. <laughs> like, yeah, saw that coming. OK. <laughs> All right. Moving on. Carl has an email here. The subject is gladiator versus an asshole. Mm, As I've okay. been getting better at the LSAT, I occasionally find myself correcting people's language usage. Recently, my wife, niece and I spent a long, fun day together. While having dinner, my wife told my niece, you can't go outside unless you eat your peas. Maybe we can take just a second there to talk about what that means in LSAT terms. If if we have a rule that says you can't go outside unless you eat your peas. What does that mean? That means, well, I like to ignore the unless clause for a half second and help people get their minds wrapped around the rule. What that means is you can't go outside. Now, there is this escape hatch. There is this Mm. opportunity that you might be able to go outside if you eat your peas, but we still don't know. Remember, the rule is you can't go outside. (laughs) You can't Um, go outside unless you eat your peas. Yeah. Okay. Carl then says, after a long moment, I suggested to my wife, you should have said, if you eat your peas, then you can go outside. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, Carl, I'm not sure why you're telling your wife this, but go ahead. (laughs) My wife scowled and whispered, I know what words mean, you ass. It's raining. My niece immediately spun around to see the wet trampoline, which made her burst into tears. I'm realizing I would make a terrible lawyer. (laughs) That's from Carl. Thank you, Carl. Um... Okay, so Carl, when you corrected your wife, you actually changed the rule. I don't think you meant that. I don't I don't think I actually think, Carl, that you were totally wrong. I think your wife knew exactly what she was saying, which I guess maybe that's what you're saying in your email. Um, I think your wife was correct to tell your niece you can't go outside unless you eat your peas. Now, it's a little bit of a dirty trick because the niece could then eat her peas and say, hey, okay, I'm ready to go outside. And the wife could say, nope, it's raining. I told you you can't go outside unless you eat your peas, but also you just can't go outside. And that's actually a legal like that's a fair LSAT interpretation of the rule that your wife had specified. You can't go outside unless you eat your peas. Ben, I've never heard anybody say that before. I love the idea that the rule is you can't go outside Mm -hmm. unless gives you this escape hatch. How have I taught LSAT for 15 years and never heard it put exactly that way? I guess we just keep getting better, huh? Yeah. Yeah. We keep changing, right? (laughs) We keep learning new ways to communicate this stuff. But yeah, the way that you should communicate that rule is you you can't. No, sorry. You can't go outside unless you eat your peas. And it is a dirty trick to play on a little kid because the kid eats the peas and then wants to go outside. And the wife says, nah, it's rainy. You can't go outside. (laughs) But she didn't lie. According to the LSAT, she did not lie. But you did. Carl changed the rule to if you eat your peas, you can go outside. Yeah. Uh, we we need to clarify this because if you're still kind of stuck on the escape hatch, you may not understand what we're trying to say. And that is 
the rule that the wife originally gave to the niece was, hey, look, if you want any chance at going outside, right. you're going to have to eat your peas. This is a right. necessary condition. This is a requirement that I'm imposing on you. But just because you've satisfied one requirement doesn't now mean you're good to go. There may be other requirements. For example, it may also need to be dry outside or not raining. <laughs> And well, another example might help too. you know, you can't go to the concert unless you have a ticket. Well, that doesn't mean that if you have a ticket, you're definitely going to be able to go because yeah, you, what if you better be healthy or no, or right. The hot you're in the hospital or you can't get there for whatever reason or the thing is canceled. There's all kinds of reasons why you might not be able to go to the can concert. But the rule still was true. You can't go unless you have a ticket. So you if you don't have a ticket, then you definitely can't go. Yep. But if you do have a ticket, it doesn't let you go. Just like eating your peas does not let you go. Carl changed the rule. Carl said, if you eat your peas, then you can go outside, which um, wasn't what your wife really meant, I don't think, because it was raining outside. Also, according to Carl, according to Carl's rule, the niece doesn't even necessarily need to eat her peas. Right. If you eat your peas, you can go outside. That doesn't mean that you can't just straight go outside. Yeah, it's a it becomes a guarantee under Carl's rule. If she ate her peas, then really the universe would need to might part yeah, there the could rain be an apocalypse outside. <laughs> and it's like, no, <laughs> we're going to let you, still you go. have to let her go out. Right. Yeah, There's yeah. like an army of killers outside and you're just like, well, you ate your peas. So nothing we can I do about it. I told you you could. So, yeah. Yeah. But and it. not only that, but. If the niece doesn't eat the peas, then Carl's rule doesn't even apply. If you eat your peas, you can go outside. And the niece says, yeah, I'm not going to eat my peas. So your rule doesn't even apply to me. I'm going outside yeah. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like Carl essentially gave a rule that doesn't do it. Well, it just it. Yeah. It changes the meaning to where if the girl wanted a an ironclad guarantee that she could go outside, then she could eat the peas, I guess. Now, to be fair to Carl, and I know this is a lot to say about Carl's short email here, but this is an important thing on the LSAT. And I wonder, I, I actually thought that maybe Carl understood what his wife was saying oh. and then was saying, oh, I think what you meant and how these sentences are often interpreted, especially by kids. And this is why you called it a dirty trick, right? When, when kids hear this, oh, you can't go outside unless you eat your peas. When they finish eating their peas, most kids and most people are now expecting, right. you know, the time to pay up, time to let me outside. And the mom could easily at that point say, sorry, but you also can't go outside unless you've done your homework or unless you've cleaned right. your dish up. Or, or unless, unless it stops torrential downpour outside. Yeah, she can keep going. There's nothing inconsistent with those claims. They all right. can be said together and they don't violate each other. But so maybe Carl was stepping in and saying, hey, look, I think what you really meant and what your niece heard what or his niece heard was if you eat your peas, you can go outside. And this is where the wife really does come back and says, well, I know what words mean, you ass. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that is not what I meant. I wasn't guaranteeing that she could go outside, which is kind of interesting because his wife like kind of pulled one on the niece, I think, really. That niece almost certainly thought this was a ticket to getting outside. Anyways, thanks for writing in, Carl. It's an important point on the LSAT. It's something that people need to just understand if you're going to practice law because you definitely don't want to fuck this up 
and put in unless in a contract that then now totally says the opposite <laughs> of what you thought it said. Because the other side is going to eat that alive, right? They're going to yeah. say, thank you. We now don't have to pay you. Or Great whatever. way to put it, though, that the rule is you can't go outside. And mm -hmm. there is there's an escape hatch, but that escape hatch doesn't guarantee anything. OK, another example. You're yeah. in a submarine that's filling with water. Yep. You will die unless you can get the escape hatch open. Yep. But that does not mean that if you got it open, you're now good. Oh, right. thank. Well, thank you the open Lord, the escape hatch open. Yeah. and you're 400 feet below the surface of the water and you die because of the pressure or. Yeah. There's a shark right outside or you get bonked on the head on the way up to the surface and you die. I mean, whatever. There's a million ways you could die. The, but the rule was you're going to die. Unless you can get to the escape hatch. So the escape hatch is your only chance. It just doesn't guarantee your like, you know, eternal life. Yeah, I love your example because it's literally an escape hatch. That's where I came up with the escape hatch a while back, but yeah. I hadn't put it the way you put it, which was. The rule is you can't go outside. So in my mm. submarine example, yeah, the rule is you're going to die unless there is escape hatch. So you can go get the escape hatch. But then there could be a whole new set of rules outside the submarine. Mm -hmm. Cool. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. You want to read this uh, next one about timing? Yeah. Anonymous says, hello, Ben and Nathan, exclamation point. I love the demon, exclamation point. I've made much needed progress. I used, sorry, wait, what? I used prep books my first two months of studying and nothing compares to the demon. However, I am having issues. I can sit and drill question after question and get them all right. I answer, answer them fairly quickly. However, when I do a timed section, my score looks as if I've been studying, or sorry, I haven't been studying. Do you have any recommendations on timing? Or am I completely overlooking a deeper issue that isn't related to timing. Do you want to talk about your reading difficulties? Sure. What do you what do you want to know? I just think the audience, I mean, I know you well. I've known you forever now. And yeah, I know that you struggle to read. I think people might have people yeah, might yeah. be shocked that a professional yeah, yeah. LSAT teacher is, has a hard time reading. But do you want to talk about your own difficulties reading and what you've had to do to compensate? I know you didn't get accommodations on the LSAT. You just figured it out somehow. But I mean, I still notice, you know, we're looking at the same agenda and I'm reading it yeah. as you're reading it. And I'm just like yeah. watching you like kind of stumble over stuff yeah, for yeah. 400 episodes. Yeah. I thought maybe the audience might like to hear some about it. Well, actually, I wish I knew more about what my challenge is. Yeah, uh, I do know. Uh, I, I do know I, I suck immensely at pronouncing words I have not seen before. And I think that's largely because I just hear them and then remember them. I've seen that know before that. where it's like yeah. you didn't learn phonics or something. Yeah. Yep. So you, you're, you have a hard time sounding things out. That might be education related, but do you also have like a mild sort of like a dyslexia or some sort of a visual yeah. thing where the words are kind of. Yeah. Dancing? I think there's definitely something with the letters. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know much about it. I just know that all my kids have it too. And so, or have something similar, which isn't surprising because these things tend to run in uh, families, but I read with them all the time because what I'm trying to do is get their, their math is one to 
two grades higher than where they're at and their reading is one to two grades lower, which mm. is a big problem because yeah. reading isn't access to information, right? And so many yeah. things are tested. So many other things are tested through reading. So we read daily and they are getting faster, but a lot of stuff too, I don't even know. I'm like, okay, well, I don't know why that says what it says, but that's what it says. So <laughs> let's do it again. I was going to ask if you had had them tested but I can see why you maybe wouldn't want to do that. Um, have you? I was. I also thought maybe you would have yourself tested just so you could find out what your situation is. I mean, that would be super interesting if you. Yeah, that's actually a good that. question. I I get this because I've signed up for this program that helps kids with dyslexia and just reading generally. They had in one of their recent emails a a test, I guess it's even like free. And I think I went to sign up for it, but it was a little hard to get, but, um, you know, this, this conversation has prompted me to say, okay, well I could go do that test and see what it, what it says. I, it was, I was more looking into it for them to see where they're at, but, uh, yeah, who knows? I'd, I would be I'd, fascinated. I'm, to I'm, hear I, those. I'm very ignorant as to what exactly the issue is. Yeah. Put it on the company card if you do do it, because I like I feel like we would benefit as a company from knowing what your issues are. I mean, you sure. could end up in teaching a class about it or something. Yeah. Uh, anyway, sorry to put you on the spot, buddy. Um, no, it's all right. It's it's quite open and out there as every yeah. time I try to read yeah, something. Yeah, we have kind of talked about it before on the show, but I, I wondered if you had any more specifics, but maybe on a future episode, we'll have some specifics. Sure. Put it on your endless to-do list. Um, <laughs> so back to anonymous, the question essentially was I drill perfectly. I just do question after question and get them all right. But when I do timed sections, it's terrible. And, and anonymous is asking for recommendations on timing or acknowledges, am I completely overlooking a deeper issue that isn't related to timing? I have some thoughts. Do you have some thoughts? Yeah, I well, okay, so my initial thought was, okay, it sounds like you're doing a lot of drilling and sometimes doing time sections and probably just haven't had enough experience ignoring the time. So the way this correspondent is drilling is different from the way he or she is going through the section. Maybe that sense of urgency is making this person go faster and then all of a sudden, you know, their score is dropping because they're not percent. doing they're not doing the same thing. Yeah. And this is the challenge with drilling. This is why you have to go back and forth between time right. sections and drilling. Right. Yeah. Don't just drill. Don't just do time sections. Do a little bit every week. Do mm -hmm. do one at one time section of each type throughout the week and do drilling in between. Yep. And just make sure that you're going back and forth. Drilling is supposed to teach you the pace at which you should actually do the questions. Yeah. I mean, you should spend as much time on it as required to solve the question you, you yeah. figured it out. Once you figure it out, then you answer the question, you move on to the next one. People, when they start a timed section, then now they start doing a completely different thing, which is, well, I've got to, I've got to answer the question quickly. I have to keep it moving. I have to finish the section. And that's just all wrong. Um, mm -hmm. You know what I think anonymous might need is a little bit of swagger. Yeah. The story that I always tell about swagger is, <laughs> Me, when I took the SAT and the proctor said go and everybody in the room frantically, it was those old school paper 
booklets, the ones that had the perforated thing on the side, you had to rip yeah, yeah. the thing off yeah. to open the booklet. Many of our listeners will never have even seen something like that. But I hear the sounds of the whole room, you know, ripping their booklet frantically and going to page one and scribbling and breaking their pens. You know, people are resharpening their pencil and like on the first question. And I just sat there because yeah. I've always been, I guess, a cocky asshole as far as tests are concerned. Mm -hmm. Some people might say in general, but, um, you know, I have always had that little bit of swagger where I was like, so I sat there in the SAT testing room and I looked around the room and I just kind of observed people frantically missing questions in my mind. It's yeah. like, oh, you're already on the next page. Like you didn't get those questions, right? Yeah. And I only took a moment, you know, it was a minute. Maybe I, I do remember that I turned obnoxiously bent over, untied my perfectly tied shoe, retied it even more perfectly <laughs> while the clock was ticking. Yeah. 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 And then went back to question one and got it right, you know, and then got all of them right. Yeah. And not all of them. I did not score perfectly on the SAT, but I, I had something then that it wasn't, it really wasn't about speed. It was just a confidence that if I, read carefully, I was going to be able to answer the questions. And I think that's what anonymous has on their drilling. Yeah. But then when they do the timed section, then now they're going into some weird frantic mode. And you got to be able to turn off the clock. That tutoring student that I was talking about earlier, one of the things that I had to struggle with a little bit in our first mm. session was to get her mind wrapped around the idea that she was going to turn off the clock when she started the sections. Yeah. And I'm going to have to follow up with her at every session to say, Hey, are you turning off the clock? Are you really devoted to this idea that you're going to take your time and you're going to solve questions? You're going to know that you're getting them right. Cause if you do that, you'll start to see how easy the test is. You'll assemble this long chain of correct answers at the beginning of the section. Yeah. And if you don't do it, the test is just always going to be kind of hard. You know, you're, you're going to you're gonna, sometimes you're going to get them right. Sometimes you're going to get them wrong, but you're not really going to be sure hardly ever because you're not actually doing it. You're not really solving the questions. You don't know your full potential. Yeah. And and you didn't even do it like I have to. You, I got to be honest with these students, right? Mm -hmm. If you're getting, you know, three out of twelve in one portion of your section, like the student was that I was working with the other day. If you get three out of 12 in any part of the test, well, did you actually do it? You're I don't think three you did. correct. Yeah. Three correct wow, yeah. out of 12. Well, or then four correct that, out of 12 or five correct out of 12. It doesn't matter because some of that's definitely attributed to guessing. Right. Some of that is definitely to pure guessing. Some of that's right. down to maybe a mild guess because there was some right. work put in, but not very much work at all. We want a hundred percent work on the ones you do and you can a hundred percent control that. Right. By just deciding I'm not here to finish. <laughs> I'm here to do very the best I can on the ones that I attempt. I decide the test that I'm going to be given, not LSAC. I'm here to get fucking paid and you don't get paid for shoddy work. 
You don't get paid for turning in incorrect answers. You either yeah. do or do not choose the correct answer. And it doesn't matter how quickly you chose a wrong answer. You know, I, you're saying get get paid, and I, I have to agree 100%, and I want to actually emphasize that you get docked when you do shoddy work. Now, you don't get officially yeah. docked. I'm not saying that the LSAT has some sort of negative point value for a question that you get wrong. That That's not true. You you get zero if you get a question wrong and you get one if you get it right and that's it. But when you don't put in all the work, when you do shoddy work and you don't get paid for it, well, that sucks. But you also get dinged because you're building a bad habit. Oh, not only that, but you get dinged because that's a question that you could have randomly guessed on and had a one in five chance of getting it randomly right. And instead, you half-assed it into a wrong answer. So you need to slow way down and just get each one right, like Anonymous is doing on drilling. Yeah, each one that you do. That's okay. That's right. it. That's all we're talking about. <laughs> Maybe go back to episode 299, Stuart's favorite episode. Episode 299, slow down to speed up. And we'll have a link right to the pertinent part of the episode in our show notes. Uh, hopefully that'll be helpful. But I mean, professional LSAT teachers agree. You do not need to finish the section in order to do well. But you need to get them right. Yep. And so, yeah, you just got to practice, I guess, practice doing time sections and practice getting them right while you're doing those time sections. Um, speaking of swagger, on Thursday, May 11th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, I will be teaching a class all about swagger. Come come have a conversation with me. I'm obviously going to retell that story about asshole 16 year old Nathan tying his shoes during the beginning of the official SAT. But I'll have a whole discussion about things that you can do to try to get yourself in the right mindset on this test. Um, I promise you that the LSAT is easy. Our whole job is to show you how easy the test can be. Mm -hmm. And many of our students finally get that swagger. You know, the people yeah. who make a 30 point improvement, those are the ones who have found it. They have realized, oh, shit, this test is actually easy. Yeah. Now, maybe you did a lot of work to get to that swagger. Um, maybe you did some mental preparation to get some of that swagger. Anyway, we'll talk about it. All you got to do is uh, sign up for a free LSAT demon account. Go to LSATdemon.com, sign up for that account. Uh, LSAT.link forward slash Nathan has all of my free classes lsatdemon.com slash classes. Once you're logged in, lsatdemon.com slash classes will show you all of our classes, past and future, that you have access to. Hey, just to clarify, lsat.link forward slash Nathan will take you to the most recent free class that you have coming up. Oh, okay. LSAT dot, uh, sorry, lsatdemon.com slash classes gives you all of the classes. Once you have your free account, you're going to get invited to all of our free shit. So, uh, and you'll see, you'll be able to see the past ones and the future ones. Yep. Yeah. Cool. All right. This next email is from Kay. It says, Hey, I made this for you guys. I hope it's helpful. I manually pulled data from the source below. Okay. We got a link here. Ooh, Tableau. Ooh, what is this? This was by request. Thank you, Kay, for sending this in. Yeah. This is uh, the thing that we requested on the show a while back. We wanted to see a visualization of 
application deadlines by the ranking of the school. So this is the school's U.S. News oh, ranked order. Yeah, yeah. Yale, okay. Stanford, Chicago, Columbia. And then we see their deadlines. We see uh, every school in the top 14 having a deadline <laughs> way early. Uh, well, I mean, you know, their their final deadline is in. Um, yeah, February 15th or March 1st. Okay. One outlier, UCLA, um, having a deadline of February 1st. Yeah. They're trying to jump the gun, uh, get a jump on all the other T14 schools, maybe. Then we see some schools that are pushing it, you know, with a later deadline. Um, really noticeable there that Wash U in St. Louis has an application deadline of August 10th for the current year. Yeah, but, that's, you know, that's interesting. And that's like almost later than pretty much anyone else. They're one of those schools that's really just totally embrace the game. They're yeah. here to play. <laughs> yeah, they are definitely playing the game. And, you know, they're out there giving scholarships early in the cycle, but they're yeah. also out there late in the cycle fishing for people to pay for those scholarships. You know, the people who who just can't wait, have to go this year you could go to a top 20 law school, Wash U in St. Louis. They are a top 20 law school because of all the scholarships they give out. And yeah. if you want to go to a top 20 law school this year, no problem. Just apply late to Wash U and pay for your education and the education of somebody else who already is there on a full ride. Yeah, that's the deal that you're getting at Wash U. So I, I don't hate Wash U for doing it. I just think it'd be a real bad idea for you to... uh play that game hmm. as expected though the better like higher ranked schools have an earlier application deadline and the lower ranked schools mostly tend to have much later application deadlines that's There's not quite a always mix, right yeah it's, it's like almost once you get below the top 15 it seems like they're just kind of all over the place. They do go quite late for some yeah. schools. And then there are some schools that are trying to mimic, I think yeah. like George Washington university uh, has an app deadline of March 1st. So they're trying to mimic the uh, higher ranking schools, but it's clear yeah, you can see that the higher ranking schools yeah. are like, Nope, we're done. We're done just, by March 1st. Isn't it funny <laughs> how similar all of these programs are, right? Like they're clearly just looking over their shoulder at each other. Yeah. Yeah, just like the law firms have, you know, the big law firms have this lockstep thing where one of the big firms sets the salary for starting associates and then all the other big firms match it. Mm -hmm. It's not collusion, you know, it's just this de facto kind of a collective, but not really. Yeah, <laughs> they're competing with each An other. Unspoken, but, a tacit yeah. co collusion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, so yeah, you can just see that these top law schools are all behaving very much like each other. And then you have it, it, really interesting, actually, that UCLA and Wash U, you know, the two schools just outside the top 14, each trying their own different strategy. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right? The very innovation is coming from outside the top 14. Yeah. And that's probably why the top 14 is so lockstep, right? They're like, we don't want to innovate. We're here. Oh, because you don't want to be the one that might get knocked out of the top yeah, 14 for yeah. doing something different. Well, yeah. who knows? Uh, anyway, we can't, we can uh, make too much of it, this. Well, but. we can make, I do want to thank you, by the way, Kay, for taking the time to put this all together. Yeah, really appreciate it. There is, um, 
it's still just shocking to me to see these deadlines. You know, July 15th, the late August deadlines. 15th. Yeah, really? I mean, app deadline? You're submitting your application on August 15th? You're going to turn around well, and start school a week later? Don't forget about Western Michigan University Thomas M. Cooley Law School, which right. uh, is ranked, you know, 150-something, whatever. Yeah. Um, they have an app deadline of September 1st. Oof. Wow. So it's like on the day. You know, I have heard other schools. I just recently read an email saying we do rolling admissions. And what rolling admissions means is you can apply whenever you want and we'll consider you for the current cycle or the following cycle. Hmm. Well, just... that makes a lot more sense, by the way. Yeah. Um, you know, I, and I, in fact, I can even see a smart school saying, oh, you're applying. OK, here's the price to go this year and here's the price to go next year. Mm hmm. Could would be that, higher. Would that benefit the school? I could see it benefiting them because they're well, you like, lock them in a year in advance. You fill up your seat. I mean, yeah. the schools from the school's perspective, the sooner they can lock in seats the easier their life is going to be. Because a lot of this gamemanship is centered around, we need to fill 431 seats. And right now, as of today, we only know for sure, well, with reasonable confidence, about 360 of them. That's nerve-wracking for them. They want to know, sooner the better. Seems like a good strategy. Here's the price if you go today. We've really they figured out this process, right? So we need to launch the John Roberts School of Law. It's going to be online <laughs> entirely. It's going to be a year program and no yep. one's going to love it. No Focus one's going on to legal writing. It. Yeah. Yep. Rolling yeah. applications. <laughs> well, it's yeah. online. It's going to be a subscription program, really. That's that's Ooh. the way to do it, do it. Well, but then how do we decide when someone graduates? They have to pass exams, I guess. Yeah. We could do it like Coursera or these other places. Where as soon as like, you pass the bar in your state, you're graduated from our school. Whoa, wait. We have a 100% bar passage rate. You could cheapen the, you could reduce the price of your education by buckling down and focusing. We don't care how you do it as long as you understand it and pass our tests. Hmm. Okay, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Kay, for sending yes. us in. This was great. Uh, next item on the agenda is from Jack. Why don't you read it? Oh, the subject sure. is what to expect this cycle? Question mark. Is my low GPA a death knell for my T14 aspirations, even with other factors? Sounds to me like somebody who is <laughs> wanting uh, us to bullshit them about, oh, yeah, your soft factors are going to do it for you. But let's hear the email. Sure. Hi, Ben and Nathan. Been listening and to and studying with the Demon Crew since February. And would like a bit of guidance on where to apply and expectations. Okay, lots of ampersands there, or ampersands. Is that how you say that? Ampersand, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I have a 3.5 GPA. Yale, humanities major with an upward trend, 3.85 in the last two years. I am confident that I can make up for this GPA deficit with a high LSAT score, as my most recent five practice tests have been 177, 172, 178, 168 and 178. So 175 average? Yeah. 3.5 GPA, 175 LSAT, 
going into the scholarship estimator. That's lsatdemon.com forward slash scholarships. Okay. Yeah. I'm curious what you find. Update. Looking like some money from Chicago, weirdly. Some, um, yeah, some money maybe from UVA, UC Berkeley, Michigan, Duke, Cornell, Northwestern. Wait, wait, wait. What GPA did you put in? 3.5. And you put a 175? Uh-huh. Oh, you said some money? Is that what you said from Chicago? It says less than half for Chicago. Yeah, okay, great, great. Okay. Sorry, I thought you were talking about full tuition or nearly full. Okay. No, no. Just <clears throat> all I'm saying is that seems like a chance of admission. I mean, I don't... Yeah, sure. I, I mm-hmm. don't think that they're giving you a scholarship, not a significant one. I don't mm-hmm. think anybody in the top 14 is going to give you a significant scholarship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Wash U, right outside the top 14, says more than half. And yep. so does uh, Boston University. So does Texas. Uh, so does USC. In the top 25, you have three. You have Florida, BYU, and Alabama are giving you potentially full rides. Yeah. All right. So, wait, what's... Jack's question. I plan on taking the June, August, and possibly September LSATs as a splitter. I have been told by some professors and peers that I would be a fine applicant for mid T14, citing my stats, undergrad, and softs, student athlete, apparently. But Reddit, oh, Reddit. Okay, let's see what Reddit has said. Reddit has told me that I should forget the T14 entirely, and schools like U Florida, ranked 21st, are going to be more my speed. <laughs> Dicks. <laughs> Dicks. Okay, what group should I listen to? As a person with big law aspirations, I would be willing to swallow some debt for T14 outcomes. I'm scratching my head as to my admission chances at any school within the T14 due to my low UGPA. Thank you, Jack. Then he puts parentheses, not elitist. Okay. <laughs> If you go to Yale, apparently you have to put that in your signature line for the rest of your life. Yeah. I, Jack, you just got to apply broadly. I mean, some of those schools are likely to find something about your application that they like. I think you'd be insane not to apply broadly in the top 14, given your goals. See what kinds of offers you get. You're not going to get shut out, I don't think, by the entire T14 if you end up with a 175 or higher. I think you are going to get admitted somewhere. That's my random speculation. Yale student athlete is pretty fucking strong. I mean, you know, they're going to know you went to Yale. You could write your personal statement potentially about being a student athlete. That could be really impressive. Your GPA addendum doesn't do you a lot of favors. Who who cares really about that? But you could write one and point to that 3.85 for your last two years. You should also, though, apply to schools ranked 15 through 25, because I would anticipate that you're going to get a lot of really generous scholarship offers there. And you absolutely can go to Wash U in St. Louis and end up practicing big law. I mean, that is definitely a big law school. Yeah. Reddit is clearly wrong here. I mean, I don't know who you just don't know who you're listening to, I guess, over there. Well, yeah. Think about this for a half second, Jack. You're willing to take on debt at a mid or at any T14 school, invest some of that money into what Nathan just said and apply broadly. It's very, it's very, a very small amount of cash to the amount yeah. that you might eventually save. 
I want to um, shout out something that uh, our teachers said. Um, we had a cycle recap recently on LSAT Demon Live. We had a class where four of our teachers talked about their application journey and what offers they got and where they eventually ended up deciding to go. Yeah. And one of the things that people said they wish they had done differently in their applications was they're happy they applied broadly, but they're sad that they didn't do optional essays for those schools. Mm. And I can see how that's really, you know, you're not giving them much incentive to to put much into you if you don't. Like, you're tipping your hat, right? You're saying your hand. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Tipping Isn't your it? hat is like, oh, good day or <laughs> nice one. <laughs> Tipping but your it, hand it, it, is where you show your cards to them. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I do know. So that's so funny. What, so does anyone ever say tipping your hat? I mean, not in the literal sense, but as a Like this, idiom? it's a golf thing. It's like a, oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, that's you're tipping like complimenting. Your hat. Okay. Yeah, that's like good one. Uh -huh. oh, okay. You'll see tennis players do that to each other. If somebody hits a really great shot, you'll, you'll see them do this sometimes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So tipping your hand <laughs> to... <laughs> That's when you're drunk at the table and you're like, ah, and everybody, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you're revealing that you're not, you know, super exactly. interested because your top picks, you're going to take the extra time to write those optional essays. And it might look arrogant to not fill, to, to not do those. I think maybe on the show in the past, we have given bad advice actually about that. I, I think I have said if you're, you know, you're not really serious about the school, they're just bidding on your numbers. Just don't even worry about the optional essays. But I, I think I'm probably wrong about that. I think that if you're going to apply, I mean, if you're going to spend the hundred bucks or whatever the credential assembly service fee is, forty five dollars. Um, I did want to say, though, that I agree with you. Optional essay. If you're going to apply, then you probably should do these optional essays. That said. I'd rather someone apply broadly and not do the optional essays than to not apply broadly. Then I you're just throwing money at it, right? You're just like, well, I'll just throw these feelers out there. They cost a hundred bucks a piece or whatever, probably more. Well, you could probably get the application fees waived. So you're just paying the report fee, which is $45. So you're spending that 45 bucks plus some time, to, but not as much time because you're not going to like customize or write the Personal, yeah. Right. The, the Especially essays. as you go down in ranking, the, the, as you go down in ranking, I think that the need for the optional essay probably decreases. I don't know. It's just pure speculation, but it's like, Hey, you don't know what these schools are going to come back at you with. They're going to, especially like wash you. They probably don't even care about the optional essay. They're playing this game. Um, I want to say brass knuckles or they, what, what is it? They're, they're just, they've taken the gloves off. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And they're, I don't think, yeah, I can, I'm sure it could help you at WashU too, but those kind of schools, you don't know what game they're playing necessarily. And just having applied was enough to get you, Hey, $50,000 a year, please don't not apply because you're worried about the optional essay. Yeah. But you know, I, I still want to, I don't know. I think people should go check out that cycle recap. If you're a, a demon subscriber, a demon live subscriber, you have access to this cycle recap class. And I think that you could find that video to be really helpful to hear, you know, from people who applied this cycle here, hear what they're saying about it. And I do know that some of them are regretful, like, hey, you know, I really what was I really going to get out of these schools with the way I approached them was not like really putting my best foot forward. 
I have a feeling that they can be swayed by personal factors. You know, the people in the admissions offices, the ones who are giving out the hundreds of thousands of dollars to potentially hundreds of students per year. That's a lot of money that they have to give out. And if you do things like make a connection, show your face, you know, email the office, talk to them a little bit, they could be romanced a little bit, I think. So maybe think about the way you're approaching these schools. Okay. That reminds me of a Wall Street Journal article I just read yesterday because um, May 1st is the undergraduate deadline for deposits. And so the Wall Street Journal article was talking about reaching out and asking for more aid uh, in this last week because this is where a lot of schools are willing to be more flexible. Yeah. Anyways, they said, first rule of negotiation is don't call it a negotiation. Instead, right. call it, hey... I'm excited about your school. I'm concerned about how we're going to pay for it. I yeah. want to have a conversation. Can Call I, it a conversation. Can I talk to you about my concerns <laughs> about the price. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yep. I negotiate. No, no. I, I'm sure your tuition is totally non-negotiable, but I'm concerned about the debt that I'm going to incur. So I, I just was wondering if I could come and have a conversation with you about, about my, yeah, about my concerns. Price. <laughs> just so we would never say, well, negotiate you're not negotiating the price. a transformative experience. We're just no. talking about the means Don't trigger of, me. <laughs> of getting this done. Yeah. So anyways, that's part of this, quote, negotiation that we would never call a negotiation, right? Befriending them, no. talking to them, understanding mm -hmm. what's going on, making them like you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Jack, who is not elitist yeah. for writing in about... Uh, the T14. We have an email here from Anonymous. Subject is unsure if I should include in my personal statement. Going to say probably not. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> look, you've only got a page and a half. If you're unsure whether something fits in, it's probably out. But let's hear. Hi, Ben and Nathan. I just took the April 2023 LSAT and have been working for three years post undergrad. I graduated with a 3.74 uh, UGPA. That's the official credential assembly service UGPA. And practice tests were average 164. After college, I co-founded an organization raising money for a children's hospital in 2022, then worked at a basketball organization managing their marketing. Today, I work with my dad at dot 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 redacted, I guess, his law firm as a client relations manager. I have no idea if I should include this in my personal statement because I don't want admissions to think that I am only going into law because of my dad. And I especially don't want them to take any scholarships away. I'm paying for law school myself and I'm banking on scholarships. Should I just say, quote, a state-based law firm or should I be upfront and state the name of the firm? I feel like there is a stigma about kids of lawyers going to law school. I have never heard that once in 15 years of teaching LSAT, but I don't know if the admissions office holds that same stigma. <laughs> Definitely not. In fact, Ben, what do you think the number one occupation is? of the parents of people who are currently in law school today? Probably attorneys. Gotta be attorneys. Gotta be. I, you know, prove me wrong, but that's gotta be the case. Now, to be clear, we're not saying that most parents of kids in law schools are attorneys. What we're saying, saying is, the, yeah, the, the most common. The number one occupation, occupation of yeah. the parents of people in law school has got to be attorney unless it's something really, really common like teacher. 
just where there's like so many teachers that that yeah, might overwhelm. The broad category mm-hmm. captures a lot of people who that might, might not otherwise overwhelm be. it. Yeah, especially if you count like all professors as teachers, then I could see it. But let's just say this. It's very common. <laughs> it is extremely common. And it might very well be the number one occupation that kids of lawyers end up going into. Yeah, might go both ways. I, I think what's important here is when you're applying, look, they're going to understand that you most likely understand what you're getting into. Yeah, it's only a good thing for you. Yeah, like I, for me, my family was all science, engineers, electrical engineers, chemical engineers. They all wondered what the hell I was doing. And I did not know what I was doing. And they were right. And they were right. And I yeah. should have gone into engineering or yep. some sort of more hard sciencey type shit. Yep. But no, I just thought I would be a lawyer. That didn't work out. <laughs> yeah. So. And if you would have been a kid of an attorney. Yep. Then, well, maybe you would have rebelled and gone to be an engineer. But if you would have been a kid of an attorney, you would have at least known more what you were getting yourself into when you went to law school. You know, absolutely stigma. Absolutely not. I cannot imagine that there is any kind of a stigma. Can you imagine a school being like racist against themselves? Yeah. You know, they're they're basically like saying, oh, no, we no. I mean, (laughs) if you go to school here, we would never admit your kid. Yeah. What, what do you think about this scholarships bit? This idea that, oh, because well, they're going to think probably have money. Yeah. I don't think they care. I, I don't. There's no evidence that they don't give scholarships to rich people. In fact, there's evidence that goes the other way. Yeah. And they are. And really what they're worried about is losing you to someone else. That's the whole reason right. they give these scholarships. <laughs> right. So. They're not, not giving about, you scholarships because of generosity or because of need. They're giving you, I mean, may, except for the top, you know, three. Yeah. But all other law schools, including schools in the top 10, are giving scholarships based on merit. And by merit, they mean LSAT and GPA. Like, what's, what are you going to do for us? Are you going to make us look badass? Are you going to come here and really kill it? And being the kid of a lawyer only makes that more likely. I mean, think about it. You have connections. You're almost certainly going to be employed as soon as you graduate in a way that some uh, students might not be. So you you increase those statistics for them as well. I don't think I would play up working no. for my dad in my personal statement. Nope. nope. But you could talk about your children's hospital thing. You could talk about the well, although this is a very short timeline. I mean, after college, I co-founded an organization raising money for a children's hospital in 2022 then worked at a basketball organization managing their marketing. That's an awful lot to achieve. I mean, there's two ways of interpreting that, right? One way is, holy shit, you interpreted, or sorry, holy shit, you accomplished a lot in a short amount of time. The other way of reading that is, that was a very short amount of time. This organization raising money for the children's hospital, does it even exist anymore? Yeah. Like, was that real? Did you phase out? Did you burn out quickly and decided you didn't like that? Same with the marketing at the basketball organization. You're like, oh, I'm done with this or I'm not making enough money or. I think you might go ahead and talk about your work at the firm, but you don't need to name the firm if it's especially if it's your last name. You don't. It's going to be, be on, on your resume. resume, but just don't don't make it a point. Just say, yeah. OK, at this firm or at 
Don't I, mention I started your working. Dad. Yeah, yeah. I, I started working as a client relations manager here, and this is what I've done. Let's just keep it professional. Just talk about what yeah. you've done. That's all that matters anyway. Yeah. No stigma. Boy, I would really love to hear people uh, go to thinkinglset.com and let us know if you think there is a stigma against uh, lawyers going to law school. If you've ever heard anything like that other than, you know, random Internet ramblings. <laughs> but I, I I see no evidence of that. And it's just doesn't make any sense. I mean, it, sensibly, it must go the other way. Yeah. All right. All right. Thank you, Anonymous. Email from Dan. Subject, should I include an addendum explaining two outlier grades? Go ahead. I have a 3.87 GPA on a four-point scale. However, I have almost a perfect GPA except for two classes that I tanked. Almost all A pluses except one B plus and one C plus. Wow, Wait. the power of averaging. Ha huh? Have you gotten your credential assembly service GPA yet? Because you might be pleasantly surprised by those A pluses. If you have A pluses on your transcript, I believe the credential assembly service is going to give you a 4.3 for those grades. So that B plus and that C plus might be overwhelmed by all those A pluses. This might be yeah. a totally moot point. You might have a 4.0 or above a 4.0 4. Yeah, credential assembly yeah. service GPA. Anyway. However, yeah, so this person, Dan, continues. However, these two grades were clearly outliers. My B plus was caused because for my very first university midterm exam ever, I had to write it with a different section because I was a varsity athlete and couldn't attend my regular section due to athletic commitments. What? <laughs> Don't, so, do not mention that. Nobody wants to hear that story. Like, look, everybody who went to college had four years or five years worth of classes. Everybody has some stupid bullshit story like that. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear that. Yeah. So my professor accidentally mistyped the location of my exam. So I showed up at the wrong room. Took me some time to realize, so I showed up to the exam 15 minutes late, and the professor did not give me any extra time, even though it wasn't my fault I was late. <laughs> uh, Keep you, going. I mean, it gets worse. I, I fuck this up all the time, but you can always show up early to be on Yeah, time. no shit. Right. <laughs> Why weren't you early? Why didn't you show up early for this exam? Why are you trying to show up right on time for the exam, potentially? Yep. Um. So you're already losing if you tell them this story. You know, it's like, oh, poor me. I was a varsity athlete. I got special treatment. I had to take the exam on a different day, which already was the professor accommodating your sports schedule. You know, certain readers are going to read that and go, oh, my God, another yeah. football player or whatever. You know, I uh, <laughs> so I don't like that story already. And then it gets worse. Now you're blaming it on the professor. Yep. Saying the words, it wasn't my fault. Keep going. Dan says, I also was totally freaking out mentally during all of all this and couldn't read a single word properly on the text as I have ADHD and anxiety that were rightfully going through the roof. <laughs> now you're disclosing accommodations that you do not need to disclose on your applications. I mean, you're legally, also doubling down on the rightfully thing like this yeah. is not my fault. I was totally in the right. I never make mistakes. Hey, I'm perfect. I get I get four point. I was straight A's, A pluses in every single class. I'm perfect. I never make mistakes. This was the professor's Someone fault else. and yeah. my ADHD. And, but my ADHD, you can't even blame that or my anxiety. Both of those you can't blame those either because some bad thing happened to me. Yep. And it, it's like, OK, you're writing this to a school that 
is wondering whether you're going to be like a good fit on campus. And what they mean by that is, are you going to be weird and cause problems and be constantly hassling them? Yeah. And this just sounds like someone who's going to be a pain in their ass. So, well, you also just don't say this in court, right? Like, oh, I want to help my client, but I'm sorry. I was right on time to the wrong courtroom. So then I went to a different courtroom and the judge didn't give me extra time. And rightfully so. I mean, I had anxiety because you just don't do this. The best lawyers are going to just be hyper triple prepared and early and they're going to make their work, you know, the focus of their life. It's going to be the number one thing in their life. And they're going to be they're just it doesn't matter how bad they get fucked. They're still going to be there on time. Yeah. Look, Dan, I I do want to step back here for half a second, say congratulations on your almost all A plus. Totally. Like you sound yeah. like a killer. You also yeah. were a varsity athlete your freshman yes. year. You, you're, uh, so we are beating up on you here, but that's just because this is, <laughs> you're doing so, so well. Just own this, just own it. You're Regardless of whose fault well, it is. <laughs> just don't even mention it. Well, I, I'm, I'm talking to Dan personally. I'm saying just, just own it for yourself. Oh. As when it comes to your applications, yeah, don't mention it. But that will also be the result of owning it, right? Once you own it, you won't even have this like desire to start pointing the finger at other people. You're you're highlighting the worst thing about your application. Like the yep. rest of your application is going to be stellar. Yeah. And I think your actual UGPA, you're going to when you get the credential assembly service GPA, Dan, I think you're going to be happy. Yes. Because of yep. those A pluses. Could be Which wrong. Which is due to all your hard fucking work. So congratulations. Let us know, by the way, Dan, come back to thinkinglsat.com and let us know whether your credential assembly service grade is act grades are actually higher than a 3.87. I'm pretty sure they are. But if you write this addendum, you're going to be focusing their attention on your anxiety, on your ADHD, on your unwillingness to take the blame for something that happened bad to you. None of those things are helping you at all. Yeah. Dan continues. This is Dan's last sentence. The C plus was due to a panic attack relating to personal reasons that I would explain in detail <laughs> in the addendum, but don't want to explain here. Look, you must, <laughs> you don't want to explain them to us. You don't want to explain them to the school. Like this Can is. Can you imagine? Let's, let's pretend we're on the application. We're on the admissions committee. Yeah. Okay. You're in the committee and I come to the committee holding Dan's application. And I'm like, hey, you got Ben. We have to admit this guy, Dan. Look at this lengthy addendum that he wrote about an anxiety attack. It's never going to happen. But what would happen is if that (laughs) addendum didn't exist, what we would be focusing on is your fucking A pluses. Look at this guy with a 4.1. And a varsity and athlete. a varsity athlete. This wasn't just a bookworm <laughs> yeah. sitting in the library. Look at all this day. well-rounded 4.1. Yeah. Uh, alternatively, look at this person with ADHD and anxiety issues and all these problems. And also a little bit unwilling to like take a little responsibility for some of these things. Hope Dan, that's helpful, don't, Dan. Don't, yeah, don't talk about this. I hope that helps. <laughs> just don't even write the addendum. It's like You're the good. more you say, the worse you look. So just write your personal statement about killing it in school, killing it in acad- or athletics, killing it in work, whatever you want to write about. Like you've got some, but just put your best foot forward. Do not focus on these two yeah. very minor blotches 
I wouldn't even call them blotches. These Man. two minor grades in your record, Don't let them go and everyone else will as well. <laughs> we talk a lot about the admissions game, you know, and that there's more going on than you know about. Yeah, we don't. But it just makes me think that addendums generally were a scam invented by the law schools to get you to disclose shit that you don't have to disclose. Because if you if you start talking in your addendum about ADHD and anxiety, they're going to think a couple of things. Potentially, they're going to think one. Oh, so we got to discount this person's LSAT. Sorry, Dan, we're going to discount your LSAT because we know you have ADHD. And if you have ADHD, then you could easily get accommodations. Whether you actually got those accommodations or not, we're still going to discount your your LSAT because you have disclosed to us that you have this learning difference. It's not a hard discount. It's a soft discount because obviously they they still are going to benefit from the number that you give them with your LSAT score. But yeah, it's a factor, right? If they're at all mildly concerned about your ability to perform well in school, then they're going to take that into account. At the top schools, a 3.87 would be below their median. Yeah. Now, I, I think Dan's going to actually probably be above their median, so I won't even have to worry about it. But let them focus on the good stuff, not focus on the ADHD is going to make them think potentially that you had accommodations which can't be good for you. Not necessarily bad for you. Not everybody's going to discriminate against you because of that, but some people will. It's illegal for them to do that. It's illegal for them to ask you whether you have ADHD, but if you disclose ADHD, they can't erase that from their brain. And then they're going to be potentially subconsciously making uh, determinations based on that. The anxiety and the complaining just makes you look like uh, somebody who might be unstable, might be a bit of a hassle at the school. And so, yeah, you're you're in this addendum, which you think is in your favor because you're wanting them to give you credit for a 4.0 instead of a 3.87. You're actually making your case worse. You know, what's interesting about Dan. I have to agree 100 percent with what you just said. I also want to add, Dan, I think you're partly successful because you are so concerned about these potential failures. Absolutely. But. Other people don't see it that way. I think you're you're looking at all, and I guess we all do this. We we over focus on our negative traits, and sometimes some people don't. <laughs> but <laughs> we we see them writ large in a way that other people just don't see them. And so you have so much good stuff here. You need to focus on that, and then <laughs> create your application so that you can help other people see what they see and not get in the way of yourself, really. That's all. Yeah. Two bad grades amidst a whole sea of A pluses. Don't even worry about it. Let's just yeah. don't, you don't need to mention that. And I, I wanna, I'm gonna think about this a little bit, but addendums were potentially invented by schools trying to get you to disclose extra shit. <laughs> <laughs> that they could use to deny you like just don't or, keep talking or accidentally keep talking. invented right like someone put it on oh right okay, yeah let them say something and they're like my god do you see what we get in these things yeah they're telling us all mines. like they're telling the truth about themselves in ways they don't realize yep um i agree that you know because of this hypercritical hyper focus thing that dan seems to have like that's probably exactly why you're so successful i'm seeing dan as a uh, max scherzer Max Scherzer is a pitcher for the New York Mets. He's one of the best pitchers in baseball. He's absolutely fucking insane. He's just a madman. Like his own teammates can't ever talk to him during the games because he's just like, he'll bite their head off. Mm. Um, 
but he's one of the best because of that. You know, he's so it's like intensity. He's just so, so super intense. But you don't need to be intense, Dan, about these two bad grades. Just just let them go. The rest of your application is so good. Thanks for writing in Uh, and keep us posted. This next one is from Anonymous. The subject line is, can activities that date back to high school be counted if they were recent and relevant? Hello, thanks for reading this. I wanted to write in because I've never heard of anyone in my situation on the pod. I completed my AA in high school, during which time I also did a lot of pre-law activities. Now, that's not Alcoholics Anonymous. That's in the associate's degree in the arts, just to be clear. A two-year degree? Two-year degree. Don't really care. Because of this, my resume contains activities that I participated in a couple years ago when I was technically in high school, but also technically in college. Well, okay, so you were in college. You don't need to mention that those things were in high school. Do you think it's unwise of me to keep these activities on my resume, even though they are relevant to my journey to law school? Example, founding and leading a mock trial team. If my dual GPA will be counted for law school, can't my relevant activities also be counted? Currently, I'm finishing my BA in psych with a pre-law certificate from FIU in South Florida. I have a 4.0 and I got a 150 on my diagnostic. I'm 19 and I'm planning to apply to Yale and Harvard this upcoming cycle, leaving me with four to five uninterrupted months to study before I take the LSAT. Do you think that'll be enough? Am I shooting too high? Absolutely not. Please help. Smiley face. Well, first of all, Anonymous, thanks for writing in. And damn, this world has a lot of competitive people in it, right? Look, we just got an email from Dan who gets almost all A pluses. And now we have this 19-year-old who has a 4.0 and pretty much already done with school. Um, This is the uh, world you're getting into. A diagnostic of 152, by the way, is a great starting score. So I'm going to call you 19. You have a great chance at going to the best of the best schools. Just don't fuck it up by limiting yourself to four to five months. That may be enough for you. It may be more than enough, but if you're not at a great score by the end of that time period, keep studying, take a year off. You're also 19 years old. So you have more time than anybody. Take an extra gap year or two if you need to. I mean, just make sure that you have a stellar LSAT to match your stellar GPA. You're going to look like such a baller candidate. Like get a yeah. 170 something, 175 or higher. And yeah, I think you're a really good candidate for Yale and Harvard. You have relevant pre-law stuff. Harvard lately has been showing signs that they tend to prefer people with work experience. So, you know, K through JD, especially when you're 19 years old, might not work at some of these schools. Well, you'll just be all, I mean, you'll be even better. You're a killer candidate right now. Go work for a year, get a little bit more perspective on how this all comes together. Not just the school's perspective or being a student or the student's perspective, get some work experience and you're still going to go in younger than most of your classmates, but you're going to have that extra experience. Oh man. You're just going to study with LSAT demon, by the way. Like we want, we could help you get that 150 into the 170s. I, I feel pretty confident about that these days. Yeah. When I when I hear somebody started that high, it's like, oh, okay, so you basically get it. And don't get fucked up by the tips and tricks that are totally out there. And well, you could sign up for a class that'll give you a guaranteed seven point improvement. Ugh. 
Oh, and then you're going <laughs> to apply to Yale and Harvard with a 157? Good uh -huh. luck. You're not getting in. No, you're not. Yeah. Thank you, Anonymous, for writing in. We need people to start putting pseudonyms so we can stop saying anonymous. I like that you called them 19. Maybe we need to make up our own pseudonym. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. All right. The next one is also from someone. We haven't named them yet. Will law schools care that I worked for a marijuana attorney? Oh, probably not. Dear Ben and Nathan, I'm about to graduate and plan to take a year between undergrad and law school to work as a paralegal. I have an opportunity to work for an attorney in my hometown, but he strictly only practices marijuana law and has been involved in writing legislation related to cannabis legalization. One quick Google search of his name, and this is clear. My question is, is there any risk that working for this guy might be a downside to have on my resume for an admissions committee or an employer after law school? Even the slightest bias from the stuffiest member of an admissions committee or most conservative employer is something I'd ideally like to avoid. I think you're Thanks. thinking about it the wrong way. I, I think, you know, the fact that you are willing to go work for this person and that this person practices in your hometown indicates to me that you're not in, you know, you're not somewhere that's like super anti weed. That's not you. And if some super stuffy admissions committee or some super conservative employer did want to discriminate against you on those grounds. I think that would be a good thing for you, not a bad thing for you. Also, uh, your real, your only real concern I think is getting into law school because once you're in law school and you're applying for jobs after that, I don't see why you would need to talk about this very much, if at all. Well, you might still have the law firm on your resume, you could take but, it off if you well, really felt concerned about. Some do you think they're going to Google this guy and then see that it's weed and then not care and then like hate you? Also, do you know how big of business weed is these days? It's fucking gigantic and it's getting way, way, way bigger. Like they just yeah. legalized it recreationally in New York State. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a, that's a new frontier is New York. Yeah, that has everything now yeah. has weed. And that's got to just be like enormous business. Yeah. The big law firms have to be scrambling to get themselves into marijuana law. Honestly, yeah. They, yeah. it's about money. I mean, they're going to have moneyed clients who have money in weed. For yeah. example, the there's a doctor that I play golf with here in Tahoe. His son-in-law has the weed store in town. And the mm -hmm. doctor doesn't smoke weed, but he thinks it's funny and he likes to make jokes about weed and stuff. And he's trying to be like the cool 85 year old doctor. But my point is that guy has money and he might have legal concerns. And this business is a huge business and they're going to have money concerns. For example, in many jurisdictions, uh, weed businesses can't put their money in a bank because of like weird, you know, oh, we like they won't take deposits from anybody that has like we said on a previous oh, recent episode, worried that it about still like, is like schedule one federal. And so right? the bank is edgy because they're like, the feds are going to come after us. Banks might come in and seize all these assets. Yeah. So what do they do? I don't know what they do. I mean, but the point is that this is an evolving <laughs> frontier, right? Like sure. they, they yeah. used to use these weird other ways of like, they had a hard time accepting credit cards, you know, and they've like slowly been getting better at, at these things. But the point is, this is huge business. It sounds like a great opportunity to work in law, 
weed law is law. You're going to be working for an attorney on actual legal matters. So any asshole who, you know, is stuck in the reefer madness era and wants to come in and, you know, wants to discriminate against you on on these grounds. I just why do you care? I think I I think it's much more likely to happen with an employer. And yeah, it's the kind of employer, like you said, you wouldn't want to work for. It seems like schools, I would hope, I would just hope maybe some lower rank schools in some more rural areas, but I would hope that most schools would actually value this because the whole point of law school is dealing with differing opinions, right? And like figuring out how to make money. That's the off norm. It. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, where's the business? Where's yeah. the business? There, there is, there's billions of dollars in this business. Yeah. Like this is a business that's going to be as big as alcohol potentially. I mean, it should be bigger than alcohol. It's it a hell be. of a lot safer than alcohol. Yep. So, <laughs> you know, what law school, I, I just can't imagine a law school like, oh no, we don't, we don't touch anybody who had anything to do with can with, can- oh, with no, weed no, law. No, I, yeah. We're not doing that. Okay, fine. Well, shut yourself off from a billion dollar business. Probably not a good plan. And I don't, I don't think that's the way these people think. Yeah. Thanks for writing in uh weed guy. I want to say one more thing about it. I want to double down <laughs> on this. I think it's good that you let people discriminate against you on things that, it's like a, it's, it's a tell, right? It's like, well, we're trying to flip the whole relationship, right? We don't want people to be desperately looking to get into any school that will admit them. We want people to choose where they're going to go. Sure. We don't want people yeah. to be desperately trying to get any job from any, you know, stuffy conservative employer. No, we want you to be finding a career that's a good fit for you. Yeah. So something like this, especially when it's like you're working for a licensed law firm, go ahead and let them discriminate against you. I think it's good for you. If they rule you out in advance, f- fine, fuck off. There's a million other people that aren't going to. Yeah. If you're everybody, if you're all things to all people, then you're really yeah. nothing, right? That's really and what you are. It's you're the same s- in like dating or whatever, right? You should just mm-hmm. show your true self so that you can end up hooking up with somebody who likes your, your real you. Oh my God. I can't imagine if you being some fake self and then perpetuating that for years or what until you're just like, okay, I can't do it anymore. Like that just sounds miserable. And that would be true at your employer as well. Beautiful. All right. Thank you. Um, weed law firm person. Yeah. This next one's from Jason. The subject is what is a realistic outcome? Hey guys, I'm signed up for the June LSAT. My UGPA is 3.43, less than competitive for highly ranked schools. I'm PTing between 163 and 169. I'm a young African-American male, law firm experience as a paralegal. At this point in my studying, I can more than likely settle and go to any regional law school near me on a full ride scholarship. I believe that. And I also believe that, I mean, African-Americans are wildly underrepresented in law school. And that's not because of law schools discriminating. It's because of not enough African-American applicants. So not only could you get a full ride at a regional school near you, I would think that those numbers could probably get some attention from top 20 types of schools. However, Jason says, I have set my sights higher. Excellent. 
Considering my GPA, what will I need to do to even be considered at these T14 schools? I think they're already going to consider you, Jason. But you need the best LSAT you can get. Is it completely off the table with a 3.43? I don't think so. I've read the 509s and it looks like 170 is the threshold for the majority, not considering GPA. If I were to be accepted to one of these schools, it would most likely be paying full price. Would the debt even be worth it? No. Or should I just focus on a regional school and leave with a free JD? I have hopes of big law, so this is playing a factor into my thought process and decision making. Thanks, Jace. Uh, thanks, guys. Go ahead, Ben. Yeah, so I'm at lsiddemon.com forward slash scholarships. I just put in a four point, uh, sorry, a 3.43 and a 175. None in the top 14 are showing full tuition. Of course, this is just an estimator, so some could come back with full tuition. But I also selected URM which we need to make that calculation even better because some schools give more weight to that than others. We have sort of a blanket calculation. But the point is, is that there are several schools in the top 14 that are offering, at least based on the estimator, more than half. So this idea that you have to pay full price is probably false. Um, I hope that you can go maybe even for more than half. Yeah, there's... There's like some gray area, you know, we speak in broad strokes, right? We say don't pay for law school at the end of every episode. We don't mean literally like hard and fast rule. Do not pay a penny for law school. We mean get yourself the best deal you can get. It's also not binary between national schools or like, you know, top 14 and then everything else is a regional school. I don't think UCLA is a regional school. I don't think that Wash U in St. Louis is a regional school. I, there are lots of schools that I think deserve your consideration. And I think there are lots of schools that would give you consideration, even if it's not for a full ride. It's there's very generous, uh, more than half types of scholarships that are available out there. So stop trying to decide, Jason, where you're going to apply. Get your best LSAT. Then apply broadly to a spectrum of law schools, you know, 15 schools, 20 schools. And, and if you, yeah, if your sites are higher, then apply to more in the top. Well, and just give apply yourself to more a, schools. Yeah. I mean, it depends on where you are. We don't know where Jason is in the world, but, um, you know, we're looking at, uh, what's the best full ride offer according to the estimator? Well, yeah. You more. I have UCLA. 15. Oh, I missed that one. Uh, so I did 3.43. Oh, I forgot 175. to check URM. Duh. Yeah. It makes a big difference. I mean, our, by the way, if you want to see our methodology for all this stuff, uh, there is a link on, where is it? At the very top, it says learn more top right corner. Oh yeah. I scrolled all the way up. Oh, there it is. It's microscopic text and it's all the way on the far <laughs> right. <laughs> it says learn more. And if you have your browser too narrow, you won't see it. It disappears. Oh, it disappears. Interesting. Yeah, it disappears until you widen out your browser a bit. So maybe think about uh, making that. That's a pretty narrow. You can. It, yeah. You, anyway. You're almost. Yeah. OK. Does it show up on phones? Because, I mean, that's where half of probably yes. people are looking. Yeah. OK, cool. Uh, all right. So then, yeah, we are looking at. Wait, what LSAT did you put in? 175. Yeah. With a 172, you start seeing full rides at. Boston University, 17th in the country, Florida, 21st in the country, BYU, 24th, Alabama, 25th. 
get yourself into the 170s, apply broadly, and I think you should have a nice array of offers to choose from. Yep. And don't don't shy away from applying to the T14. I mean, if they're going to make an exception at Harvard or Stanford or Yale, if they're going to make an exception for somebody, you know, the let in somebody with a 3.43, they are, in my opinion, justifiably going to be making those exceptions for African-Americans who are just so underrepresented in the highest levels of law. Yep. Absolutely. Thanks for writing in. Keep us posted. Be LSAT famous. Please ask questions or share news with us at thinkinglsat.com. If you have questions about the LSAT demon, email help at lsatdemon.com. You can also check out our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily. That was episode 400 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.